0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: We are currently in a sermon series during the season of Lent that's titled Moving It All Forward. Which, through the lens of trajectory, allows us to explore how ancient texts that, that seem violent or irrelevant to us today actually represented a move forward in the author's time and culture. With that understanding, we're then situated to consider how these age old stories can inspire us to look for where the divine is beckoning us forward today in 2023. Beyond the particular content of each sermon in this series, it's our hope that these sermons can help us to rework some of that old muscle memory as it relates to our relationship with the Bible by trying to model a historical, sensible, and relevant way of reading it today. This morning, we're going to consider a small four-chapter book from the Hebrew Scriptures called Jonah. Maybe you've heard of it. Perhaps you grew up singing Veggie Tale songs about it. Or perhaps you've read it and have been horrified by its violent ideas about the divine. Jonah, a tiny book that has fascinated humans for millennia. In the story, God tells Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh and to declare to them that if they do not repent, they will be destroyed. Side note, Israel and Nineveh, a capital city in the empire of Assyria, Israelites and Assyrians, are they were arch enemies. They absolutely despised one another. It would be very fair to say that they hated each other. With this hate in mind, God tells Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh and to declare to them that if they do not repent, they will be destroyed. Now, Jonah, he doesn't really like this idea. Rather than seeing the Ninevites repent, he would very much like to see them destroyed. And so he flees on a boat in the opposite direction of Nineveh. While out at sea, according to the story, God sends a great wind. The sailors fear for their lives. They pray, but their prayers can't make the storm pass. And so they cast lots to try and figure out what's going on. And the lot just happens to fall on their passenger, Jonah. Jonah tells them that the storm is his fault He's running away from God. And to try and improve the situation, he's thrown into the sea, which suddenly becomes calm. In the sea, Jonah's life is preserved when he's swallowed up by a very large fish. In the fish's belly for three days, Jonah decides that if he survives, he will obey God. He will go to Nineveh. He will tell the Ninevites to repent or perish. The fish spits him up onto dry land. Jonah preaches his message. The Ninevites repent. God relinquishes from destroying them. Jonah is furious about this. And so God asks him, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah, we're told, then goes up onto a hill that looks out over the city of Nineveh and he builds himself a shelter. God then makes a vine grow up and it provides shade for Jonah, which he loves. But at night, God causes the vine to die, and this makes Jonah mad. And so God asks Jonah another question. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? And you've probably had days like this. Jonah declares, I do. I am angry enough to die. (laughs) He is so mad. The story then concludes with these words by God. You were concerned about the vine for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And with those words, Jonah is the end. The end. Isn't that a curious way for a story to conclude? Like, we have absolutely no idea how Jonah responds. For all we know, he's still on the side of a hill mad as hell. Or or perhaps, perhaps this experience broke open his heart, changed the way that he saw humans, maybe even his enemies in particular. We just have no idea. The story suddenly, abruptly, and intentionally ends. And that, you see, is the point. Now, before getting to the point, let's make space for the violence and for the absurd. God is going to annihilate 120,000 people because he says they do not know their right hand from their left hand. God creates a storm at sea which has the potential of wiping out a whole bunch of innocent sailors who just happen to have Jonah, the rebellious Jonah, on their boat. Jonah gets thrown overboard and the storm immediately stops. Jonah is then swallowed up by a large fish and somehow survives for three days in its belly. After his change of heart, this large fish spits Jonah up right onto dry land. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if he like belly surfed in and spit him up or like shot him out, but he ended up right on dry land. Jonah then preaches, Nineveh repents, God relents, Jonah is mad, God causes a vine to instantaneously grow up, which provides shade, but then God kills the vine and this makes Jonah even more mad. And then God and Jonah have a conversation, I'm guessing in Hebrew, which concludes with these divine words that you just heard a moment ago. You're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor, which you did not grow. It came into being at night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and so many animals? What are we supposed to do with all of this violence and, and some of this absurdity according to the modern mind? Well, as we've been learning throughout this series, one way to read the Bible is, is through the modern lens of infallibility and inerrancy, which means that we need to accept the divine promise of violence if Nineveh doesn't repent. We need to accept the storm suddenly beginning due to Jonah's disobedience, suddenly stopping due to Jonah's uh, obedience. We need to accept Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days. We need to accept Jonah being spit up right onto land after his change of heart we need to accept the vine growing and fading seemingly immediately and probably most of all we need to accept that god is violent that god will annihilate an entire city if they don't do just what god wants them to do but all of this the threat of divine violence the storm the fish and the vine are terribly difficult for we modern humans to swallow and and for good reason And so, as we've also been learning throughout this series, another way to read the Bible is through the ancient lens of accommodation, which makes space for the context and consciousness of the Bible's authors. Through that lens, we can think to ourselves, it was normal for ancient people to think that the gods made bad things happen when humans were bad, like annihilation and storms at sea. It was normal for ancient people to think that the gods made good things happen when people were good, like relenting from destroying Nineveh or a fish swallowing up and saving Jonah. You see, accommodation makes space for the context and the consciousness of the authors. And so to read Jonah, to appreciate Jonah, we don't actually have to turn off our brains. We don't actually have to go against our reason in order to explore its potential goodness for today. And besides accommodation making space for the context and consciousness of the Bible's authors, accommodation also encourages us to read the Bible with appreciation for the Bible's literaryness, Meaning we can appreciate the Bible as a book that contains various types of literature and we're encouraged to put on different interpretive lenses to understand this literature. With this in mind, the book of Jonah can be helpfully understood through the lens of parabolic literature. That's how the Jews for a very long time have understood this book. Many of us are familiar with parables because Jesus tells them all of the time, similar to the one we heard this morning about the Good Samaritan. About parables, especially the longer ones, parables employ the use of metaphor to tell stories composed of settings that cast characters that we tend to identify with in order to rouse ethical living or a way of living that leads to human flourishing. That's the intent of parabolic literature, to tell stories composed of settings that cast characters that we identify with in order to rouse ethical living or a way of living that leads to human flourishing. With this in mind, the story of Jonah isn't trying to tell history or to state facts about God and storms and fish and vines that we must believe or else. Rather, the book of Jonah is creatively inviting its readers to consider themselves in light of its textured story and use of parable, which is to say, in this story and through its primary character, we here today are being invited to see ourselves. That's the invitation. Through this book and through this primary character, we're being invited to see ourselves. And this is where the book begins to pick up steam as it relates to our lives today in 2023. At best, the Ninevites are foolish, at best. And God says they do not know their right hand from their left. At worst, the Ninevites are wicked. Fill in whatever imagery helps you to perceive of their wickedness. Now, for a moment, let's pause to consider a person or people who we think to be foolish. Like, Just, just get somebody in your mind's eye. Maybe they've said foolish things, or maybe they've done foolish things. It, it doesn't really matter what they've said or done. What matters is that inside of yourself, they are foolish. Now, let's pause to consider a person or people who we consider to be wicked. Like, let's just get a person or people in our mind's eye. Maybe they've said wicked things. Maybe they've done wicked things. It doesn't really matter what they've said or done. What matters is that inside of yourself, they are wicked. And now to make things a bit more personal, according to history, the Ninevites were the Israelites' archenemy. Israel absolutely hated the Ninevites. Israel didn't like the Ninevites. Israel didn't trust the Ninevites. And if there was one group of people that Israel thought could be wiped out and make their life completely better, make the world a better place, it would have been the Ninevites. And so let's pause, let's pause there as well. I'd like to ask this question. Is there a person or people that if they were to be wiped out, your world would become a better place? If there were a person or people that were to be wiped out, like they just stopped breathing, your world would be a better place. It's a dire question, and if you have an answer in mind, it probably means that you've been deeply hurt, terribly hurt, tragically hurt by this person or by these people. And to be clear, you're not at fault like this desire for a person to just not wake up, to just perish from this world, that doesn't make you evil or bad. It just says that you are pervasively human. You've been terribly hurt, so hurt that you think or dream or even pray sometimes in the middle of the night, I wish that person were dead. And if we're being real honest with ourselves, below that anger, like below the anger, It's probably a whole bunch of fear. And below that fear is something even more tender, probably a whole bunch of of vulnerability. And below all of that vulnerability is the tenderness of your very soul that has probably been stomped on, smashed, and broken to pieces by the person or people that you'd like to send off to hell. Can you now feel the relevance of this ancient book? oh human, isn't it? God says to Jonah, go to your worst enemy. Go to those who have the most possibility and capability of harming you and everyone that you love and tell them to repent or else they will die. And Jonah thinks, no way. I want them to die. I would rather they die. They deserve to die. And holding his fury, which helps to cover his fear and vulnerability, Jonah flees in the opposite direction of mercy and puts an entire boat in danger. In a study by psychologist Charlotte Whitley, people were asked to think about someone who had hurt, mistreated, or offended them. While they pondered this, she and her team monitored their blood pressure, heart rate, facial muscle tension, and sweat gland activity. According to the study, when people recalled a past offense that harmed them, their physical arousal soared, their blood pressure and heart rate increased, and they started to sweat more. The study found that ruminating on past wrongs was stressful and unpleasant, causing them to feel angry, sad, anxious, and much, much less in control of their own lives. You see, the story of Jonah is about the hate that we hold toward the people who may very well deserve to be hated. But the irony is that our hate primarily hurts the people on the boat that we're sharing our lives with. And it hurts us because we can't last long on a boat while we're filled full of stress, unpleasantness, anger, and a deep sense of being out of control. And so thrown overboard in our hate that's created a whole bunch of chaos, we are caught in the isolation of a fish's belly. And I think we've all been there at one time or another. At the bottom of the sea to consider, how did I end up here? Until after enough time, at least according to this story, we whisper to God, okay, enough. Like enough tomb, enough prison, enough life in this fish's belly at the bottom of a sea. I will choose to move forward, to do it differently. Spit up onto land, we begin to find our footing. We bathe and put on clean clothes. We take intentional steps forward. And to be clear, this isn't really about the Ninevites the people whom we've come to hate. This ancient story is about our very own survival. That's what it's about, the life that we want to live, the relationships that we want to nurture, the boat that we want to be on without causing storms that put everybody that we love at risk. And this step forward, this decision inside of our hearts, it feels good, really good, doesn't it? we've probably felt those moments where we actually notice something inside of us unclench. We start to have our lives open up a little bit wider. The world seems a little bit brighter and everything seems to be heading in the right direction, right? Until, always until we hear that story or see that post or pass that person or people who have hurt us so deeply and they seem to be doing fine, better than fine. They seem to be doing tremendous. (laughs) And in an instant, all that fury returns doesn't it? Physical arousal soars, blood pressure and heart rate increases. We begin to sweat. We feel stressed and unpleasant. We feel angry, sad, anxious, and less in control of our very own lives. Sitting on a hill looking out over Nineveh, we are furious. Why doesn't God get them, we ask. After a little time, the emotions fade, and we feel shaded from our heat, and we're grateful but in the blink of an eye, the emotions return and we feel furious again. The good and the bad, the gentleness and the anger, the graciousness and the rage, the mercy and the fury can feel so impermanent at times inside of ourselves when it comes to our wounds and trauma. Can't it? And so sitting on the hill of impermanence, considering our lives and our pain, there are these moments, I think, Kind of like the moment that Jonah had with God at the end of the story in which the divine asked him some penetrating questions as a way to help him open his heart, soften his countenance. Can my finite perspective comprehend the complexity of human experience? Can my pain and trauma determine with certainty that a person or people are completely wicked and beyond divine graciousness? Can life on a boat with rage in my heart nurture the flourishing relationships that I desire to nurture with this precious life that I have? Can raging on a hill alone and mad take me where I want to go in this life? Until suddenly, abruptly, the story ends. We just have no idea how Jonah responds. For all we know, he's still on the side of a hill, mad as hell. Or perhaps this experience broke open his heart and changed the way that he saw humans and enemies in particular. We just have no idea. The story suddenly, abruptly, and intentionally ends, and that, you see, is the point. Of course, the story doesn't actually end. For millennia, this ancient book has been inviting humans to consider how they're going to proceed with the hurt and pain and trauma that resides inside of them. How are we going to do it? Mad as hell on a hill, taking stock of our lives in the bowels of a fish, creating chaos on a boat, feeling the divine tug to move past our fury. These are all options. These are all deeply human responses. But the tug to move past fury, the tug to attempt forgiveness, this truly is our most hopeful response that we see Jonah being invited into by the divine. Now, when we start to think about the the territory and land of benevolent forgiveness, I want to make a few clear points. The work of forgiveness isn't to say that a person or people shouldn't have consequences or that justice is unnecessary. Forgiveness and justice are siblings, but they're not identical twins. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you must reconcile a relationship with another person. That may be an outflow of forgiveness, but it's not the same thing as forgiveness. In fact, depending on your stories and depending on your traumas, it may be wise for you to ensure no contact with certain people for the rest of your life. The point here is actually quite personal. Personal. Because forgiveness isn't really about the person or people who have hurt you. Forgiveness is about you. This is so important for us to get as we continue to mature into adulthood. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about your life. The decision to move forward, the hard work to heal from trauma, the embodiment of a life lived out in the land of graciousness. This is about your flourishing. It's about my flourishing. This is about human flourishing despite the wrongs that we've endured as humans in this world. I'd like to conclude with an interesting fact about the date of this book called Jonah. Scholarship tells us that it was written as late as the fourth century BCE, even though the story itself is about a time period from 300 years earlier. And this is what scholars call an interesting rhetorical situation. Here's what I mean the book of Jonah is written as though this story occurs before Assyria conquers Israel. But it was actually written and being read long after Assyria conquered Israel. It's being read and written 300 years after, to be specific. And so the Jews who wrote and read this book knew very well that the repentant Ninevites, I use air quotes here, the Jews who wrote and read this book knew very well that the repentant Ninevites in this story eventually kill, abuse, and destroy their people. Isn't that interesting? I think most of us, if we've, if we've read Jonah or we come to the book of Jonah, we read it and we think that it's possible that the Ninevites repent, grow good, and live at peace with Israel happily ever after. But that's not what happens. The Ninevites actually horrifically harm Israel. And in the story, Jonah seemed to know it just a little bit, didn't he? He was at least fearful that the Ninevites wouldn't be truly sorry. He was at least fearful that the Ninevites wouldn't truly change. And for sure, the Jews who first read this short story about Jonah knew exactly what the Ninevites did to their people. And if I had to guess, that's why I think this book was written not to try and help the Ninevites, but to try and help Israel who had been so terribly harmed by Nineveh. And so taking some literary license, I imagine Israel after their captivity in Nineveh. So they're finally free. They're finally back in the land. They're starting to think about building their walls and rebuilding their temple. They are free. They are actually free. But I imagine that they're still filled with rage toward an entire people. Carrying their rage into their relationships and creating chaos on their boats, taking stock of their lives in the bowels of the fish, mad as hell on a hill, all the while feeling the divine tug to somehow possibly move past their chaos and fury. But they were stuck. Stuck on a boat, stuck in a fish, stuck on a hill, and there was nothing that they could do. They couldn't go backward. They couldn't change history. The only agency that they had was to decide how they were going to live and what they would do today. Similarly, that is our only option. We can't go backward. We can't change what's happened. We can't change the relationships we've been a part of or the decisions that we made or the people who didn't take care of us that led to the things that happened to us. We can't go back. The only agency that they had, that we have, is to decide how we will live, what we will do today. Today. An occasion to decide I will not allow my trauma to sink the boat I now live on with the people that I love. Today. An opportunity to do the work of healing. It's hard work, but it's work that I choose to do. Today, a gift to more fully experience the goodness of forgiveness that sets our lives, our relationships, our hearts, our minds free. The kernel of goodness in this ancient book that presents a move forward is that today is a chance for us, us, every one of us humans who have known pain and sorrow and broken hearts and the wickedness of others, today is an opportunity to take a small step forward, past our rage and fury. Today is an opportunity to move toward the divine waters of forgiveness that set our very own lives and relationships free. That is the invitation And I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, our pain and anguish and trauma can so quickly fill us with rage and cries for vengeance. Will you raise up our eyes toward a kingdom called mercy, toward a kingdom called grace, toward a kingdom called forgiveness, that we, we might be free to truly and fully live.
0: We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.